This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Kind Ass Traveler that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today and celebrates why we'll never stay home. I'm Meredith Carey, and this is my co-host, Lala Eric Koglu. Hello. Today, we're talking about a bucket list trip, traveling to Antarctica. Lala and I have obviously never done that before. Um, and we're joined in our studio by traveler contributor, Dordie Libby McGraw. Hi. And luxury luggage brand, Paravel's founder, Indre Rockefeller. Hi, pleasure to be here. Um, and we've got Women Who Travel regular Nina Han joining us on Skype. Very exciting. Hello. Um, so I guess the first question, which I'm actually going to shoot to Jordy first, because you kind of have an interesting, complicated story um, about why you decided to visit Antarctica in the first place. Well, it actually started um, a little over two years ago. My husband and I had made a pact when we got married that we wanted to go to all the continents before we had children. So obviously Antarctica is is a continent and it was the last one on our list. And we booked the trip. Uh, we went in this past January and we booked the trip about a year and a half earlier because you kind of have to do that when you're planning a trip to Antarctica. Um, and I got pregnant in September. So I actually ended up going to Antarctica five months pregnant. So it's still before having children, uh, but I just didn't realize I was going to be pregnant. And uh, that's how Antarctica came to be. So we actually announced um, the fact that we were having a child from Antarctica because it was our last and final continent. And uh, it was kind of a nice ending to that whole pact. It's kind of the most precious photo. It's Jordy and her husband, Ross, and then a tiny penguin in between them. <laughs> it's the perfect Instagram announcement. Um Indra, how did you end up in Antarctica? Well, it was one of those one of those trips where I didn't know it was at the top of my bucket list until the opportunity was presented to me, and suddenly it shot to the top of my bucket list. And I still remember we were standing in our living room, and my husband, Justin, had just opened his inbox, and there was an opportunity to travel with the Nature Conservancy on this trip. And we looked at each other and sort of thought, well, that's crazy. We, we can't do that. And then within five minutes, we had decided that it's crazy and we were going to do it for the very reason. That the best kind of trip. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and Nina, I remember distinctly getting an email from you before you were leaving that you had hurt yourself and were really worried about not making it. Um, so why did you end up deciding to visit and what happened along the way? I'll try to give you my Reader's Digest version. Um, I Well, I have been mildly obsessed with wildlife. I don't know, since I was very young. So, of course, like everyone is. And so Antarctica was always kind of looming in the background for me. 
um, in the last five to ten years, I, I think that fascination with the place has kind of just been budding and growing, and I've been wanting to learn more and more about it. And then I met, I had the opportunity to interview um, an Antarctica research scientist, Dr. James McClintock, who I've covered for Condé Nast. And he really got me so inspired to go and visit. Um, I consider myself a conservationist, but I kind of am like an angsty conservationist. Like I get righteous with people and I, I realize that that shuts down the conversation. And in talking with Dr. McClintock, I was really, um, I mean, he's traveled there for the last 10 years. I think he's been leading trips as part of, he goes and he works at Palmer Research Station regularly, but he also regularly leads tourist trips there as um, in affiliation with Abercrombie and Kent. And he has a lot of people who will come back to him and naysay climate change right there in, in Antarctica. And I was like, how do you handle that? What do you do with that? How do you not get angry about it? And he was so like, it just was a, a turning point for me and how to communicate those messages because he was so about listening and hearing other people's sides of the pers of the conversation in order to keep it going. So when I heard that he was leading this trip and then I read a book by him, Lost Antarctica, I was totally pumped to go. So that's kind of what made me want to go. Um, and right before, a week before my trip, I took my son to the sledding hill, uh, about, I don't know, a block or so from my house. And this trip was like, as I'm sure the rest of you who went, you know, like this trip is a trip you don't plan like quickly or lightly. Like you have, there's a huge buildup to this trip and like nothing was gonna stop me. And I will usually jump on the sled hill with those with my child, but I'm like, I don't think I even want a sore finger for this trip. I wanna be ready to go. And I ended up helping him down the hill once and I got hit by a teenager and I broke some bones in my back, oh, no. oh, but I'm lucky. And that's that's when you guys got the probably Norco induced email. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband is a physical therapist, and he got me on all the right treatment and exercises and medication, so so that I was well enough to go. It was kind of a miracle, and and I'm all healed today, which is amazing too. So. I just remember getting this email and be like, wow, okay, so Nina broke her back and she's going to Antarctica. <laughs> like, hope, like, may the odds be ever in her favor. <laughs> well, Here I, we go. I think I also did a double take when I was reading the email because I was like, okay, so she's going, but, you know, once she's recovered, then it was like, oh, wait, no, in a week. <laughs> <laughs> you guys all kind of planned far in advance. Do you think this is a really out of reach trip for people or is it just kind of is that a block that people put up in their minds I mean it's definitely expensive um, there are different you know you, you almost always have to take a cruise there are some places that you can skip the Drake's Passage and and take a flight down but you still have to be on a boat once you're down there so um, and there's there's different levels of accommodations that you can choose from. But regardless, even if you do, quote unquote, the bottom of the barrel, it's really expensive. So I think for most people, you could do it. You just have to make an effort to save up for it. And that's why we booked, you know, a year and a half out because we knew that we wanted to save up for it and not have to, you know, all of a sudden January comes and you have to pay $15,000 out of pocket like that. It just wasn't reasonable for us. And also, if you book earlier, there are some deals. So my mom also wanted to come to Antarctica. So she actually came with us. And like I said, about a year and a half 
before we left, they had a deal where she wouldn't have to pay a single supplement fee. So it's just kind of being strategic with when you book, uh, which company you book with if there's deals, and then kind of saving up. So yes, it's definitely pricey trip and it's a it's a it's a luxurious option um but it is possible and you can book far enough out that you can set aside a couple hundred dollars a month so it doesn't seem so overwhelming all at once which i think we've talked about on here before which is that if you want to make travel a reality you know prioritizing that like every single day is the way it's going to happen for you um even if it seems like it's you know really out there indra i wanted to know a little bit so you get this email and you're like, all right, we're going to take this crazy trip. Like, what were the next steps you took after that? Layers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, you know, in, in all seriousness, you know, obviously it's a it's a commitment from a time standpoint as well as a financial standpoint. So really planning ahead. Uh, in terms of taking off a few weeks from life to really be off the grid in in a magical way, but you really are off the grid. So it's about making sure the infrastructure is in place at work and at home to make sure that things, you know, can continue running smoothly and everyone knows how to reach you if they need to reach you. That was a priority for us um, as someone with a with a startup and children and, you know, wanting to make sure that that I wasn't leaving, you know, leaving anything unattended to. But um, after that, it was really about doing research and and knowing that we were going to be experiencing something very special and that we were very fortunate to be able to do so. So really understanding what we were going and, and getting into and what we would be experiencing and knowing that the more we knew, the more we would learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd say after that, then then the layers started <laughs> because I was very intimidated by, especially after a very long cold winter, which I didn't know I would experience more many more months of that upon yeah. returning. But it was uh, it was in late February, so I thought this was sort of my last hurrah with the cold, and I was already at my uh, sort of wits end and <laughs> so wanting to make sure I was, was going to be as comfortable as comfortable yeah. as possible. And here we I'd, are, yeah, in April and it's 39 degrees. Yeah, it actually <laughs> might have been warmer in Anna. And Nina, you've written for us before about um, kind of taking solo trips uh, away from your kids and your partner. So can you just talk about what that was like going kind of going on your own? Well, I knew that there was Wi-Fi on the ship, but I sort of operated that it wouldn't be available. And I this might sound cruel as a mom because I do want to keep in touch with my kids. But it was really important for me to have this experience where I was offline. So I, I resisted it. And I remember asking somebody behind the desk on the ship, like, how many people actually get Wi-Fi when they're here? Like, how many people will shut it down and how many don't? And they said, like, at least 80% of the passengers want Wi-Fi, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I, I kind of prepared my family for it, and they all had emergency numbers if they needed to reach me. So I sort of prefer on these, you know, once a year kind of hurrahs that I can have where I can go and just totally dive into a place. And this trip was such a big deal for me, obviously, with the broken back and my husband, like, helping me to get there that I was totally happy to shut everything down. Didn't mean that I didn't have mountains of emails when I came back. Um, (laughs) We wanted to be there and, like, listening. We had amazing lectures on board and there were really um, incredible people that I wanted to be fully, fully there for it. For listeners who aren't familiar with how on earth you even get there, like, what was... Where do you fly into? Where do you board the ship? And kind of what's the route that you take to to get to Antarctica? Well, for me, we flew um, from New York to Buenos Aires. We spent one night in Buenos Aires. And then you 
um, take another flight further south to the most southern town in the, in the world, which is called Ushuaia. And then you get on a boat uh, for two days through the Drake's Passage. And then finally you get to the, the continent. And then once you're there, uh, depending on the trip that you do, I think we were on land or, you know, with on the continent for about a week. And then it's another three days back. A flight from Ushuaia back to Buenos Aires, another night in Buenos Aires, and then back to New York, which is why it does. You have to make that time commitment because even if the cruise itself is only 10 days, it's you're taking a lot of time getting there. I mean, it's it's really far away. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, it, it sort of that that was my itinerary. I don't know if uh, other people same, have other ones. We had the same one. And, and the Drake Passage is obviously the <laughs> most uh, notoriously rough seas in the world. So it is both an adventure. You have the opportunity to list. We also had fantastic lectures. We had um, biologists and glaciologists and climate change um, specialists speaking, and it was that was a wonderful educational tool. Um, you're also on a roller coaster while you're <laughs> while listening to these lectures, and um, we had up to 20, 25 foot waves. And but I, I really, a lot of people asked why we didn't opt to skip the Drake mm-hmm. Passage or whether we wanted to do that. And for 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 me, it was really a rite of passage. It was the a part of the transition into this otherworldly environment. And you really, in Antarctica, you feel like a visitor mm-hmm. on your own planet in the truest sense of the world word. There's no uh, human footprint there, um, no tangible human footprint. And so taking this Drake Passage where you're sort of at the mercy of nature is sort of a great transition into the whole experience, I think. So we, we wanted to, to have that be part of our trip. Transit of the Great Passage is sort of for me like a notch in the belt of brave things I've done. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, the marathon I, made me feel like super confident and boss, and crossing the Drake Passage made me feel super confident and boss, even though it was nothing of my doing. When you start doing your research and you start reading about it, it seems like you have to do it. Like she was saying that it is a rite of passage. It is There's something to it that that feels like you have to do it. You have to properly kind of earn your passage there. and. Um, I think 95% or something like that of all trips to Antarctica cross the Drake Passage. So that's the primary way that you get there anyhow. So, Well, when we put out um, the fact that we were going to be talking to you guys about Antarctica into the Women Who Travel Facebook group, one of the uh, group members, Valerie Stern, who's a rock star, she's 60, um, she was talking about how she had done it um, and was saying that if she did it again, which she'd love to, that she would be more accepting of like some of the unfortunate weather circumstances that they got because she was like, I didn't really respect like we had 15 foot seas with 70 mile an hour winds and we like got there. Oh yeah. Um, Which again is kind of like you just, when you're going to this super stark place to like realize the power of nature, I feel like is, is part of the journey and part of the whole gist of what you're supposed to be getting out of the trip. Oh yeah. And I got super seasick. Like, don't get me wrong. It wasn't (laughs) like I was this adventurous woman. I mean, I was, I was five months pregnant and, um, and, and, and going through the Drake Passage. So I feel like I really earned my badge of honor. And um, I wish this was a video because I could show you guys a, a photo that I took of myself. That, that was me for about two days. It's a picture of me just laying in bed with a cold towel over my head. Um, you look like the most green I've ever seen a human yeah. being. <laughs> um, but it, but it was worth it And uh, in, in the end because once you get there, you really do. You feel like you're you're in the minority um, and you're the the blip 
on on the radar in this incredible you're the place. Zoo. Yes, <laughs> yes, you're in the cage, and yeah. and every, everything else is just happening around you. And if you have to deal with some rough seas and two days of seasickness to get there, it's. I feel like I'm hoping it's like giving birth, where you just like you. Once the baby's here, you don't even think about what you just went through. <laughs> it's like you're okay you in the end. Out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, when you guys finally got there, what did you? do well there's a lot i mean there actually is a lot to do i felt really busy we some days we would even have two landings so you would um you kind of got into a routine of it almost even though it's like such an out there place but there would be lots of lectures on board um which is one of the great things there's a lot of researchers on board there was a photographer there was all the different types of people approaching antarctica from different angles and then you'd have different boat groups and you would go out because i think they only let 100 people at a time on the continent so you would go out in these smaller boat groups and go for hikes um and go see thousands and thousands of penguins or go kayaking there was a different activity to do every day and um, you would think, you know, oh, it's just ice and penguins every single day, but it, it never got old. And there were volcanoes and and the it, everything just changed right in front of you. You could be there and watch a, a glacier calve or an iceberg flip. And it just life, it, nature was just happening around you. And um, so, yeah, your itinerary basically, based, depending on weather, um, have a landing or two a day where there would be an activity. And then you'd have lectures and you'd eat your meals and you'd go to sleep yeah, and, <laughs> and you, wake up and do it all over again. And you went out on little Zodiac boats, which mm-hmm. have about 10 pe- passengers per boat. And they're these little sort of army grade rubber boats. So it's a very intimate experience, especially when you're cruising, when, when you're, you, you obviously get to land, but when you're cruising, you, they're very quiet. So you are almost floating in this ice world and you're away from the boat. The boat's usually out of sight and you're just in and out in very intimate way. You get right up to these um, icebergs and and um, you can really, you feel like it can be a very intimate experience, which seems counterintuitive. Um, and for us, we actually, on the way over, we lost a little bit of time because the Drake Passage was especially rough. So we started, we had on our first day, three landings, which is a lot. Oh, that's, that's intense. And we started at, they woke us up pre-dawn with a 5.30 a.m. wake up call. And I just, I'll never forget that moment because it was such rough seas the night when we went to, to bed. And then that morning, morning you just hear over the loudspeaker you're being summoned and like the sun is rising and you open that window and it's just this pristine quiet alternate universe it's like you've landed on the moon Mm -hmm. and that transition from the night before to waking up to this beautiful world of ice with the sun sort of coming through and all these shades of blue was was really magical so we started very early on our first day and we made (laughs) we had only enough time to come back fuel up we, we went up pre-breakfast the first day, fuel up and, and turn around and go back out. But you you go with it. It's and wonderful. And what, what did you see on that first day? Oh, everything. Uh, ch- a lot of chinstrap penguins, minke whales, humpback whales. There was a leopard seal that was swimming under and around our Zodiac boat, almost sort of you know, taking, you know, taking us in, in a way that's, you know, that feeling of the zoo. At one point, my husband was leaning over the boat to to take a, a picture of something in the water that he saw. And this leopard seal just swims right under. <laughs> like, you do not want to lose a hand to, <laughs> to his curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> and Lolly was telling me that you plunged into the ocean? I did. I did a polar plunge. Um, so you go off, you jump off the side of the Zodiac boat and they, they have you tied up so that 
in, in case it doesn't go, it go sideways, you can still be yanked out of the water. I think the water was, they said, 0. 0.8 degrees Celsius. So it was freezing. Nice. And I was wearing, I, over my bathing suit, I had a layer of sort of long underwear on. Which um, is nothing. <laughs> well, and in fact, it, it was counterproductive because by the time I had crawled up the ladder, it had turned to icicles. So I had to pull off an ice shirt. It was just within seconds. But they, you know, they give you a, a towel and a robe and a vodka shot when you get out. And you, again, black out. You don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I just did it. Just what, did it. What did it feel like when you hit that water? There were a lot of expletives. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Just for context, because my husband, I didn't do it. I, I had five months pregnant. I think that would be yes, not advised. But my husband did it, and uh, the person that helped him into the water was in a full dry suit. Not a wet suit, oh. a dry suit. That's, I mean, that's how cold it is. Yeah. So, I, yeah. yeah. And Nina, how did you spend your days <laughs> on your cruise? Uh, it was very similar. I mean, we, we did a lot of landings, and I know that I think they're limited to two landings typically a day, I think is what the norm is, and yeah. we, we usually did that. Um, we One of the really cool parts was a visit to Palmer Station, and I think like 10 boats a season get to go there. So they the scientists call this like the Shangri-La of Antarctic research stations. So we got to go visit. Um, Jim McClintock led us through and meet with the scientists there, which was super cool. And he tells a story, not to bring like grimness to like the, the fun of, and beauty of Antarctica, but Jim has this story, he's been visit. I think he's been doing research there for like 16 or so years. And when he first started, there's a glacier behind the research station that would calve like, what, calving is like when huge chunks of the iceberg break off. And it would calve once a week and all the scientists would jump up and go run and see, you know, watch the noise and watch the waves and watch everything that happened. And now with warming, that is that happens several times a day. And so much of that glacier has receded. And when we were there, he was showing us all of the area that had been covered by glacier. And then what had been retreated was revealing new islands and things like that. So it was very interesting to see all of that um, and to see they have and a Delhi penguin population there, which was uh, a penguin that is one of the ones on decline. So it was pretty neat to see that too. Um, and when you talked um, to your guide originally, uh, when you were reporting a story, um, how how do you make sure that you go and visit Antarctica responsibly? Because I think a lot of people think of travel and putting all of that, you know, all of those greenhouse gases and all that CO2 from getting down to Buenos Aires and then flying more and, and traveling and doing all that kind of stuff to be bad for Antarctica. But he said that it was important for people to see it, right? Right. I mean, there's no doubt there's like a, a huge and substantial carbon footprint to go there. But my feeling, his feeling, many people who went on this trip was that there were so many other evergreen sort of lasting powerful effects that can help make you um, an ambassador for the continent. Um, and one of the things that people don't know a lot about is that tour tourism and tour operators that go to Antarctica are regular, they almost all of them belong to an organization called IATO, and it's the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators. Um, and so they kind of self-regulate and self-police and all agree to do that. It's a huge, long vetting process to become a member. Like you agree to have another member organization on the trip, on your first cruise to make sure you're doing everything right. Um, 
And that means like, without getting into all the details about like Antarctica, but the, I think in 1961, the Antarctic Treaty was formed. And that's when the, I don't know, 12 nations who had all staked different claims of territory in Antarctica decided to put that aside and declare this a natural reserve dedicated to science and peace. And then 30 years later, IATO forms also. And, and I, I think like the tour operator, operators almost decided to do the same thing. Like we're going to all agree to like, we're all competing there. We're all looking to make money, but we all want to do it responsibly. So they, they have like huge fuel bans, like, and they don't allow um, any ships with more than 500 passengers. And you can only have, I think, 100 passengers at a landing site. Um, they all like try to, to regulate this like wilderness experience. So you really don't see other ships. And there's a lot of really, really fine orchestration going on. Um, not to mention like it was, even though we talked about the Drake passage and like how boss it felt to go across it, I was kind of a wimp about it. Like I knew that I, I saw the videos and I was really like, holy shit, I'm scared. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get through it. But this is where I think like picking a luxury operator or, and looking at an advanced boat, that was really important to me. And the boat that we went on had like all these like high tech, super efficient, like electric propulsion, quietness, which was great for wildlife and getting close to the animals. But I'm getting off the rails just a moment. Like the important thing for conquering seasickness for me was they have stabilizers and the captain described them to me as working like the fins of an airplane, like in turbulence almost, right? And so these stabilizers come out and when you're hitting these waves, and some of them are more advanced than others. It was amazing to see the waves, but not feel as much of it. Like we're in a restaurant, this nice French restaurant on the ship with the windows right next to us. And my champagne glass is not moving, but outside was like a movie. It was crazy. <laughs> I'm all about like if you go to Antarctica, go with a luxury operator and not only is it comfortable, but oftentimes like they're operating vessels that are like really efficient and all the, again, going back to that, like being responsible about it when you're traveling there. So many of these tour operators are doing it with passion and responsibility to, to preserve the environment. I, I would just add to that, that every time you got in or off the boat, mm -hmm. you would be taken through sort of a cleansing process so that you wouldn't be trekking things from our world into the Antarctic ecosystem and vice versa. We had very thoughtful instructions given to us um, to stay out of the way of the natural ecosystem. So there are the penguin highways. We were told not to sort of cross them, get in the way, allow basically the wildlife to do what it needed to do. And so that we were not bringing uh, we were not. We were told not to not to litter, not to be even be careful the way you're using your pockets if you have loose tissues. There were very specific instructions. Yes, very in in specific instructions. So we weren't leaving anything behind, and uh, we weren't bringing anything back that we didn't need to. And actually, uh, we got the opportunity one night to actually spend the night um, outside in a tent um, on the continent, and they told us we could not go to the bathroom. That you know you weren't allowed to go if you had to go like deal with it deal with it <laughs> like that they they didn't want any chance of anything you know getting in in the way of of what was happening there in the nat in the natural environment so no bathrooms yeah gosh um, when, when you're pregnant when yeah. you're pregnant <laughs> i was like oh no <laughs> um speaking of seasickness i 
I was on a ship for four months for my study abroad experience in college and lived and died by like acupressure bands. Um, is there anything else you found other than amazing ship stabilizers, which are like the most surprising thing? I, that's the same thing that would happen to us. We crossed from South Africa to Argentina and it was like a 14 days at sea. Um, and I just remember being at dinner and like watching the horizon move and like being like, I'm just sitting here eating my food, which is staying put, like staying put on my on my table. Um, but was there anything else that you guys found like tricks or tips that you have for just general cruise seasickness? Staying in the center of the boat. Um, they had a lovely lounge on the top. And when we were going through the Drake's Passage, I just kind of avoided that because you just you feel the sensation of the rocking much more. Luckily, our stateroom was kind of in the heart of the ship. So that really helped. Um, and, and just not moving too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Take your time. And also for me, maybe it was just because I was pregnant, but regulating my body temperature. So some parts of the ship were a bit warmer than others or were sitting in the sun. And um, if I got too hot, it just made it feel that much worse. On the way back, I, di I didn't get seasickness and I had the bands on and I took some Dramamine, which was uh, I was allowed to take. And um, so on the way back, I was fine and I just, I just took it easy. And keeping your eye on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Fresh air is super mm -hmm. helpful, and uh, the ship, we all had balconies, so I'd throw that door open and just, like, go out and catch that fresh air. Um, I spent a lot of time, you feel more rocking on the top of the boat, but I liked being able to see. That always helps me to, like, be outside or to see, and you can't spend too much time outside, because I don't know about the rest of you ladies, but the coldest times for me out there were out on the deck when we were moving, because that wind is, like... It's not so bad. It wasn't so bad for me on other times, but so getting cold air. Um, and even when I wasn't sick, I would do a Dramamine at night just to help me sleep because sometimes you're rolling. So yeah. I didn't want to be woken up. <laughs> you have to stay in the bed I, I, I and it's own challenge. <laughs> and taking the Dramamine at night also helps because then you, for a lot of people, it makes them drowsy. It makes me really drowsy. So if you can take it at night, it helps you sleep through the night. And then it's still in your system throughout the day. So you you know, can keep the seasickness away and then you take it again at night. So that was a trick rather than trying to take it in the middle of the day. Because I'll tell you, once seasickness starts, it, yeah. it will it does not stop. And then you get into a whole other layers of seasickness that you didn't know existed. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to preemptively take it, even if you're not feeling seasick and you think you might, is a, the good way to go. So I'm interested to know, um, you know, kind of what your all of your takeaways were from the experience. You know, um, you go to all these lectures um, when you're on board the ship and then you you see this like moonscape and, and, and watch this wildlife that you're going to see sort of probably once in your life, you know, just go about its, its day. Um, and it feels like there's a real influx of people who are interested in going and more and more people are trying to travel there. And you know, what was your takeaway? Do you think it's important for other people to go? Like, would you go back? Like, why should people be going there? So my friends joke when I got back that they keep saying, goes to Antarctica once. And, you know, because <laughs> I was so captivated by the experience. And, you know, my takeaways were very much uh, shaped by what I saw and how inspired I was by this pristine part of our planet, but also layered on top of that was the, the education that I got listening to what's happening to it. And there was one um, message that some, some of the speakers from the Nature Conservancy said that really stuck with me that 
w the next 10 years are more important than the next 10,000 for us in terms of making sure that uh, our carbon emissions and the temperature rises associated with that are curtailed uh, in a way to make it manageable uh, and not catastrophic in the long run. And we're still in a window that change can be made and it can be effective. And I think that's so important. And to me, it was an optimistic message and a message that I could rally behind. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing, you know, the, what is one thing reading about it. And when you layer on being able to witness something so magical and pristine that that we haven't that we haven't lost yet um, was really inspiring to want to take action. How about you, Nina? I went there with an intention, I think for the first time ever in all the places I traveled to because it was so so excited to go and so looking forward to spending time with Dr. McClintock that I had this idea that I was gonna really make my travel there count. So I went there with the intention and that might explain why I wanted to be offline and really present there because I went there with the intention to like see, to learn, to be able to come away, to take action to not just be talking about, all right, we need to make change, but what is that change going to be? And the polar environments, both of them, I mean, we, we know in Greenland, like there's so much dramatic melting that some people say it's past the tipping point, like there's not much we can do there. But in Antarctica, there is still that of opportunity. And these places see changes the rest of the planet so fragile that they always, they, they, they have the impact first. And so it was an opportunity to go and kind of look at a place that is, is said to be a bellwether for what could happen to the rest of the planet. So to go there and to like capture these stories and then to kind of challenge myself, okay, you've had this privilege to go here and travel here, now what are you gonna do with it? And that for me has been like, it's almost changing the way that I'm looking at travel now. Because I, I really wanna start thinking about that. It, it's, it, to me, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know of another place that is so hyper protected like Antarctica. So when we talk about should you feel bad about going there, I don't really know that you should because I feel like they're being so responsible about. I mean, even IATO recently banned the use of drones. Like, so you can't just go there and use drones because they don't know how that's impacting wildlife. And think about drones everywhere else and how they're impacting wildlife. So I don't know. I they're, they're such an example for the way tourism should be and some really. Um, endangered or protected areas that need protection. I have since like talked to Dr. Mittock and we like keep continuing to explore ways that we can work together because it's, I feel like there's a big message you can take and stories to share and we all have this amazing platform to share them from. I mean, it's impossible to go there and, and not walk away from it without feeling more educated and enlightened um, and have an appreciation for nature in a way that you never had before and and it is interesting it is a place that is so pristine and they take such good care of it and you also have to remember this is one of the only places in the world where multiple countries live and work there together um without issue uh no one's trying to stake any more claim than anyone else and, and it's amazing to watch um but not to reiterate what what the other women have said, but um, yes, of course, the, the lectures are amazing, and you walk away with uh, much more knowledge uh, about the poles and how it's affecting our environment. And a lot of these cruises, I went with Hertegruten, and they're known for doing both Antarctica and the the North Pole as well, so they really do have a sense of that. But one of the biggest takeaways for me, and maybe this is coming from my sort of spiritual and health coaching side, but was 
not only did they educate you, but they also really encouraged you to be in the moment and unplug. And there was, it really was the anecdote to FOMO. Like you didn't have a fear that you're missing out on anything because you were there. You were, you were in the moment. That was it. Um, sleeping in that tent at night and just couldn't even see anything, but you could hear the, the glaciers calving and you could hear a penguin walk past or things like that. Like that was full, that was all the entertainment that I needed. And to be in a place that really encouraged you to be fully present and in the moment, I think only, you know, amplified all of the stuff that we were learning because you were just fully immersed and so, so far away from home. Because I feel like even when you travel, you go to Europe, you go to places, they're all incredible, but you still don't feel that far from home. This is one of the few places where I really felt far away and it was absolutely incredible. And it was something that I don't think you can get in many places. And if I could just add, because so much of this is is resonating, I I should have included it earlier when I was speaking. But when I came back from Antarctica, I was inspired to do something. And one of the obvious places to start was in my own backyard. And that was with my business. And I have a direct-to-consumer travel luggage and accessories brand and I sat down with my co-founder and we started looking into the business and seeing what we can do as a business. Uh, Our entire mission is to bring joy to travel and we create lightweight travel bags made, made from cotton. So we always had this instinct to to champion natural materials, to champion um, sustainable manufacturing practices, but we really wanted to take it to the next level. And I, having traveled in a way that made everything sort of click together, it really um, inspired us to rethink how we how we package our materials, what materials we use in our bags. So we're now starting an initiative where our goal, our mission is to have 50% of all the materials we use be recycled and sustainable and move towards 100% marker, redo our packaging, um, and really as a brand, create a firmer mission statement around to what you were saying, around um, unplugging and being present, being mindful when you travel. And it's so important to be in the moment. I also you know, opted out of the Wi-Fi system on my boat and I came back for one of the, one of the first times in my life not needing a vacation from my vacation. Mm-hmm. And really um, having the ability to shape how people travel as a travel brand, um, we really decided to double down on that message. It's about being mindful. It's about being locally aware. It's about being lightweight. And it's about on the responsibility on us as a brand also to think about the materials that we use and the carbon footprint that we emit. So we just launched today, actually. Um, we'll be launching an, an email for you know the Earth Day to, on eco-travel and how to help our own um, customers uh, along that journey as well. So it's, it was a very, it really was the impetus for the, that sort of change for us as a brand too. So it's a long-term mission, but when we were starting. I think that really speaks to this <laughs> mantra that we keeps on coming up all the time. It's like every episode, it's like sometimes you actually have to go and see the place to learn to care about it. Mm-hmm. And that's come up talking about Barrier Reef and um, you know we had a great episode with um, a bunch of ocean scientists um, recently and that was the same thing it was like you know when you see it like you you, you want to protect it yeah yeah exactly and i think that's a beautiful place to end 
So thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, we are so excited. And hopefully, listeners, uh, you guys can get to Antarctica. Lala and I may at some point in our long lives get there, too. Um, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Instagram at, at @welltraveler or on Twitter at, at @jordylippe. Okay. L-I-P-P-E. And Indre? And uh, you can find me at Indre Rock. Uh, for my personal Instagram and at Paravel for my brand's um, social handle and uh, tourparavel.com for our website. Awesome. And Nina? I'm at Nina K. Han on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. And I'm at Lale Hannah. Thank you guys so much for joining. Thank you. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <up. laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.